Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. I'm Jason James, executive producer. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors who just happen to be black. Black Doctor Speak is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project and hosted by Dr. Michael Lenore, a medical reporter and a past president of the National Medical Association. Today, we're going to feature an interview from John Elegon. He is the New York Times correspondent on race based out of Kansas City. And he's been following the pandemic in African-American communities since it began in late February. We get information from the ground. But first, let's go to Dr. Michael Lenore. Doctor, how are you today? Well, I'm good, Jason. How are you? What's on your mind? I'm doing very well, trying to stay safe over here in California and ready to talk about the coronavirus. I think we can jump right into this. Um, according to CDC data, we are seeing on average 50,000 new cases since the start of July per day. Numbers speak for themselves, but I have to ask, Doctor, did we reopen too soon? Uh, we absolutely did reopen too soon. I think that there is some misconception that we can isolate this virus state to state. It's simply just not possible. So when you open up in one large area of the country, you're certainly going to spike in that area. But these people move around and travel, and with the whole concept of the silent spreaders of the disease, you really don't know exactly who in your family or who in your associates might have it. So if you're open in several major areas uh, and those areas are spreading the virus, going out across the country, that's why you see the spikes. Don't let them tell you it's just because we're testing. You were testing more, yes, but the percentage of people who are positive is growing in many, many areas of the country. Absolutely. And as we know, the task force has not met um, in over a month, yet we are still seeing Dr. Fauci. And I wanted to touch very quickly on the role and responsibility that he has. Uh, when he is out speaking publicly, he often contradicts the administration um, on what they're saying about coronavirus. Is he doing the right thing by contradicting the president and the administration when it comes to this topic? Oh, absolutely. It's just common sense. First of all, to listen to the health people instead of to listen to the administration. The administration has led us down a very bad path. More importantly, it has a tremendous fallout on black and brown people because the administration has just been far off on this. They're taking a political approach, not a public health approach. And African-Americans bear the consequence. We should just listen to the public health people. Absolutely. And what about in your experience? You are a doctor. How are you responding to this crisis, and how has it impacted your practice? Well, it's impacted our practice in a number of key ways. First of all, we aren't seeing many patients actually in the office. We are uh, seeing them mostly by telehealth. And I don't want people to be concerned about telehealth because we can get most of the necessary information about your particular problem by telehealth. In fact, sometimes we actually get more information because we have the time to ask you the the necessary questions. So don't turn down telehealth appointments for anything. The second thing is too many people are ignoring their own symptoms because they don't think there's a 
resources to handle them in an emergency room or hospital setting. And if you think you've got a significant problem, don't lay around with your chest hurting, don't lay around with your leg hurting, your knees and ankles, or make your appointments with your doctors by telehealth. And if possible or necessary, they will find a way to make sure that it's taken care of. Telehealth is the, the most important change in our practice. The second thing is that everybody is concerned and scared. You know, they, they don't know where the virus is. They're getting double messaging. So one of the one of the roles that we have is to make sure on a regular basis you get the absolute truth. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to take care of ourselves even in a crisis. Um, and so I really appreciate you letting our listeners know that they need to still prioritize their health. And remember the three pillars of good health. They are exercise, diet, and taking care of your mental health. And make sure you do all three as you try to deal with the other contingencies of this viral pandemic. On that note, I think that's a great segue into our topic for the day. Doctor, why don't you tell us a little bit about John Elegon? Well, John Elegon is a very unusual young man. He's the New York Times reporter on race and class. And he's been following this epidemic since it began in late February, pretty much on the ground. So we need to hear from him what he's seen and what he's observed. Hey, how you doing, John? Good, how are you? Good, good, man. We really enjoyed uh, reading your articles, man. That was uh, really a kind of an eye-opener. In some ways, lots of things that haven't really been discussed. And do you remember when you first thought that the coronavirus situation was going to be a problem in this country? Yeah, I mean, I think the first time was when I think we got those first reported cases out of Washington. But what really did it, I think, was the one, I, I believe it was in, in Northern California, where there was the case they found where the person did not have any travel history to China or, or Europe. And that really gave a sense that this thing could potentially be spreading internally, right? I mean, that, that seems to be the only logical explanation. And so once that happened, I mean, it just felt like inevitable that it was going to be a problem that the U.S. was going to have to confront as well. Uh, some of the stories out there that suggested to you that the epidemic would affect African-Americans more. I know you roll with bus drivers. You talk to people working in factories. You talk to people who are obviously victims of a different form of care. What are a few stories that stand out that made you suspect that this was going to be bad stuff for the African-American community? Just knowing the history, right, the social determinants of health and how... African-Americans tend to be underinsured, tend to have less access to quality health care, tend to live in places that are environmentally hazardous. You, you combine all these things, and then it doesn't take rocket science to see that this is a, a disease that any sort of pandemic or whatnot would affect African-Americans more because of those underlying problems. And as you, as you know, I came out to the Bay Area to interview folks in Oakland to see what type of preparations were going on because I wanted to find out in a place that serves a predominantly black population and one that is working class. What types of preparations are already being done and, and are people already looking at that? And unfortunately, a lot of the worst fears have been realized about how this would impact African-Americans. And I, I just remember coming out there uh, to Oakland and, and going with one of the respiratory therapists to uh, an apartment of a woman who lived in downtown Oakland. And this is a woman who was an asthma sufferer and she was kind of in this single room occupancy um, apartment building. There were communal bathrooms. The unit was small. It was like a small, like a dorm room. There was not very good ventilation. And this one was, was, a, was an Uber driver. So there, there were just a lot of risk factors there that you could kind of see that, you know, are disproportionately going to be the situations that African-Americans are going to face. So that, that was really kind of the first eye-opening moment for me once I did come out and talk and, and, and report on that story. 
And the one other thing I'll say about that article, there was also a woman who the, the respiratory therapist who actually was, was experiencing homelessness. It was, this is a woman who, as we were driving to, to, to visit the other woman in the, in the apartment, the woman who was experiencing homelessness, she was calling from the emergency room because her boyfriend was there and she was visiting him. And she was saying that she needed to go get some prescriptions from CVS, but she had no way to get there because she has no transportation. She takes public transit. She has severe asthma herself. And, you know, you just look at things like that and you say, like, like these folks are going to be very exposed and in a very precarious situation if there is a serious outbreak. And unfortunately, that's what we see happening. As black doctors, we knew from day one that this was going to be a nightmare. You know, why do you think Americans were surprised by this? I mean, it sounded like when they started looking at the statistics, this was some oddity. This was some unusual set of circumstances. And all of a sudden, it's time for us to figure out exactly What's going on? I almost had a sense that they were selfish, trying to wonder what's going on here that might spill over into our community. But why do you think they acted so surprised? Well, I'll answer this on two levels. I think many Americans who don't really don't really acknowledge, I should say, is is my choice of wording, the disparities that exist in America, the racial disparities in general. And those people, they don't really want to see or want to understand in some ways the nuances of race and how that affects many things in our lives, where people live, what type of health care they get, you know, where they go to school, what types of jobs they're able to get. And those people who don't see that, I think there's going to be some genuine surprise that are going to come from them because, like, they're not even acknowledging that stuff in the first place. And I guess the other side of that, folks who do know, like, you know, how things function in America, some of those decision makers who know how their decisions play out along racial lines, whether that be mayors, governors, senators, and things like that, those people, they cannot fake like they're surprised by this. If they're saying they're surprised, it's not genuine because what I just said, all these social determinants of health were indicating this could be a problem and this would be a problem, in fact, for black people in this country. And I'm no rocket scientist or genius myself. But if, I, if I could write a story about this early on and see this early on, I think you know, a lot of these people in positions of power who have access to information, who have, you know, just the access to like raw data and raw stories in front of them in their communities would, would know this. So I think anyone who's like on that level, who's saying they're surprised, it's, it's just not really believable that you should be surprised by this. How you respond to it, that maybe you, you were surprised that you're, being ha- that you're having to respond to it now, that might be one thing. But like to say that there's some overall surprise about this is kind of hard to believe. In the history of things, how does a global health crisis like this affect communities like ours that just have uh, no preparation from a historical standpoint? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's several things, right? On the one hand, you have all these pre-existing disparities that have been playing out that have led to these conditions where black people tend to have diabetes, hypertension, obesity, things that were proven to be the greatest risk factors for people with coronavirus. And those things were not caused by accident, right? Those things were caused by the way that this country was systematically built, one that excluded African-Americans and black people from the benefits that could have put them in healthier positions, that can have put them in better jobs, given them a better education and things like that, that would have maybe allowed them to have better health outcomes overall, right? And that's, and I think that kind of lays the foundation for what we're seeing when a global pandemic comes and there is kind of nowhere for us to go, right? And even if you look in, and I'm not too well-versed on all the particularities of this, but if you look in places like the UK, they're also seeing that black people are dying at disproportionate rate of the coronavirus. And so, you know, if, if you think about the struggle on a global sense of people from the African diaspora, you know, a lot of people from the African, African diaspora, while 
they may not have been places where there was chattel slavery like there was in the United States, which was like kind of the foundation for much of, of what followed. There is still, for many people, uh, people of African descent who live in Europe, people who are uh, in South America, those, there's still a lot of that racism and a lot of that exclusion that you experience from society. And when you're excluded from a society, that means you don't necessarily get the benefits or enjoy the fruits of that society has to offer in terms of things like, you know, proper healthcare, things like proper education, things like good jobs, and, and just the things that can help make your life more healthy. And I guess the other thing I'd say on top of that is, you know, we, what we know is that with what we've seen is that racism itself is a stress factor, right? It's, it's something that can, that can cause stress and that can cause medical conditions that, again, can contribute to, to people suffering disproportionately when there's a pandemic. So I think the dynamics you're seeing here in America are very similar even if they were shaped differently by other places around the world, but but they're very similar. Yeah, you, you know what amazes me about some of this, uh, and I'm consistently amazed, is that one of the biggest factors in any of these, a common denominator in African-American outcomes and health, is the way they're treated in the system. The study that you referenced in the Boston-based biotech firm that yeah. talks about how black people get different treatment, this painful story that you talked about with the engineer who, who went to this Possible couldn't get even a culture. But, you know, when they start talking about these dynamics, none of them ever talk about the possibility that black people are treated differently by the system. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because amid all the talking I've done, that, that's kind of one part that even I've just omitted, right? For all that we can say about the underlying conditions that led to black people being in positions that make them most vulnerable, we can't deny or, or discount the fact that just straight up racism could be playing a role. And now a lot of people will take this and say, whoa, whoa, but you know, like I, I don't, you know, I'm a doctor. It's not like they dislike black people. They're trying their hardest, you know, they're working under tough conditions and that's all true. But what we do know from research is that clearly there are people that everyone has implicit biases. And what volumes of research have shown is that those implicit biases apply to the medical field. So, you will have things like black people will not get the same cardiac treatments as white people do. Black people will not get the same level of painkillers or pain treatments that white people do. So these things filter into the medical field. And what's even more is that researchers, as you know, have found that it is in times of stress, in very stressful situations, where medical professionals will tend to fall back on these biases that may not allow them to treat someone the way that they should be treated. And what more stressful situation is there than now during this pandemic? So this is not to say that like these doctors are have some sort of intentional like cross burning racism in their minds, but they have biases like everyone else. And this is just the situation for those biases to come out is even more right now because it is a very stressful situation. Before this epidemic, do you think that African Americans were considered part of the first responder? Andre? I think when in our mind, if we close our eyes and think implicitly about who you think of when you say first responder, I don't think people thought of African-Americans that much of that. But do you think that surprised America? And do you think that's um, going to change in terms of how they consider them a component of any pandemic crisis? You're on the front lines in the grocery stores and the factories, on the buses. These are all services that would nothing logistically to work without these black people. Yeah, I think it did surprise people. Yes, for sure. It surprised um you know, many Americans, whether that changes how we value these first responders. I think the optimist in me or the, or the one who wants to see the good in humanity would say it has to. It really has to change. Like, there's no way that we can go through this very harrowing time and say that, you know, it's, it's not going to change. But the cynic in me says that I don't see any evidence that suddenly we're going to go back and suddenly these people's lives, these, you know, other people of color 
immigrants who are fulfilling these essential roles that suddenly this this country is going to embrace them because I just don't see where that is in the history. And, and if we we're even looking right now, there's a very big push and rush to reopen. And if you look at the loudest voices in that rush, it is voices of white people, those who are not from the communities that are being most affected by the deaths and the infections in this in this case. Those those ones that are, you know, while their communities are being in, uh, suffering from this as well, they're not suffering at the rate that black communities are. You know, like I, when I was in Detroit, like everyone I met knew someone who died from the coronavirus. You know, like, you know, like, it was just like people knew multiple people who died from it. I think you'd be hard pressed to find white communities where there are people who just like all around them, their friends and family and people they know are dying. So, so all that is to say that we, when we look at this rush to reopen, to me that in some ways minimizes the pain and suffering that these communities of color are experiencing. And if it's already being minimized now, who's to say that five, 10 years from now, that we're still going to be holding on to the lessons that we learned that bus drivers essential, the, the meatpacking workers essential, you know, the, the grocery workers essential. It's, it's hard to see this holding on to that because it already seems like that's slipping away. What's interesting to me is if you look at the statistics around the country, I guess primarily focused by is that first responders, as they describe them, have less problems with morbidity and mortality than the general population. But if you look at the first responders driving the buses and the grocery stores and all these essential jobs, that's, that's simply just not the case. But they tend to gloss over that by mentioning that maybe with the mask and the free prep and all that, wearing the mask may be the difference, yet they never discuss the plight of those other first responders that take care of all the other things. One of the things that leads into that, a couple of the final questions is, do you think, did they know how dangerous their jobs were as you talked to them until they got in the middle of it? Do they understand that driving a bus or working behind a food counter or working on the street was a dangerous situation until very late in the game? Well, I think that just in ordinary times, it depends on the job. Like, so like the bus driver, as I spoke to, for instance, like they, there was always a sense, a level of danger in their jobs because they have to deal with public, uh, the public. And, and sometimes they have to deal with the public, you know, and at times when they're not, if they're not at their best moods and things like that, you know, so you're dealing with people, you don't know how people are coming on this bus and then, and what, what they've gone through that day. So I think there was always a level of frustration, a feeling of disrespect that a lot of bus drivers already felt even before this happened. Now, if you look at the pandemic, I don't think any of them, bus drivers, people who work at grocery stores, taxi drivers, you know, I don't think there was ever a playbook or a sense that, you know, I'm getting into this job. And if, if for some reason there's some of this big health crisis where the people are getting infected and dying, that I'm going to have to be on the front lines. I don't think that's what they go into these jobs doing. I mean, the fact of the matter is people are going to these jobs trying to survive, right? I mean, and we're, and we're seeing that because a lot of these are low-wage jobs. A lot of these are those jobs that people aren't making a living wage. So, like, these are things that people are doing to survive, provide for their families. And so it's in some ways, it's a little bit, I think, insulting to them to, like, look at them as, like, these heroic first responders. No, these are people who just want to survive. So to, to paint them as some type of heroic responders kind of says, hey, they signed up for this. You know, they signed up to, like, put themselves on the line. A very difficult framing. What is your impression of how people are doing with the fact that not only are they trapped in their house because of the pandemic, but now there's kind of this fear among black people about just being able to go outside and just be black in general and be able to stay safe. I was actually 
talking with a colleague about this, that the trauma that inflicted upon black folks specifically. Like, I mean, I think there's a certain level of PTSD that's going to be, we're going to be seeing society-wide across racial lines. But I think black people, if you think about it, like, we're like the consummate, it takes a village, right, to raise a child. It takes a village to raise us. Like, we are, we are a village culture. You know, we rely on our, on our fraternities and sororities. We rely, rely on our community centers. We, there's like something about that cultural aspect, excuse me, community aspect for us that's very important in the culture. And think about that. If you take that away from people, if you take those churches away from the people who, who use them not just for spiritual nourishment, but for social nourishment, you see a lot of our elderly folks who don't just worship there. That's their social network now. You know, that's, they're not on Facebook and, 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 uh, and Instagram and stuff like a lot of younger folks are. You know, so you think about taking that away. You add layer on top of that the fact that, like, going outside now is particularly dangerous for us because, you know, we may have diabetes, we have hypertension, we may have obesity. We live close to, like, factories that pollute our air that we breathe that that sense of not having that community on top of you can't go anywhere and you, you and you you're worried now because if you do go anywhere you're going to catch this illness that has a better chance of killing you like that has that has got to have a weathering and a very wearing and stressful effect on black people right and so it's going to be very interesting to kind of see how we're able to emerge from this because i guess the other element and i and dr lenore i'm sure you uh, be well versed on this more so than i am but a lot of times, like therapy across society is something that's, that's very hard, hard to handle. And I think a lot of times within our community, there's a sense of we have to be strong. So like be seeing a therapist and, and doing therapy right. is something that is seen as a, as a weakness, you know, whereas, you know, like, no, need that mental health nourishment. So, so you layer all these things on top. And I think there's, there's a really dangerous trauma brewing for black communities um, from, a, from a mental health standpoint and, you know, as, as you layer all these things on top of each other. Oh, there's no, no question about that. This administration is willing to balance its economy on the backs of African Americans and the elderly. And then when they start looking at these increased numbers, where are those numbers going to come from? How will America change its attitude toward the health of African Americans? Well, now, right now, we're kind of high. I mean, it's always talked about every time, every element except discrimination on the part of the healthcare system. Yeah. Um, but do you think this is going to change anything? I think that gets back to what I was talking about earlier. I would like to think so, but I, I, I mean, I, I do think that there will have to be some inevitable changes. I think that we're, as you know, we obviously have to leverage this moment in the right way in order for that to happen. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that strikes me the most is that what this pandemic has done is even for people who were comfortably in the middle class, you know, like they had their health care, you know, they had different things. This pandemic has even brought these people to the brink of like falling off the cliff. They've, they've brought these people to food lines, you know, so they've prevented them from going to get regular medical checkups or if they, you know, have any medical situation, they can't go to the hospital because the hospitals are so overwhelmed. So they're starting, so this is a lot of people who may not um, have these experiences of black people who are disproportionately affected by these things. Um, this has brought them to understand how precarious and on edge life can be. And my hope and my expectation is that will bring people to maybe, maybe a little bit more understanding of like why we need to solve these problems and then create a more just society for black people and other, other marginalized groups who are, who are always living on the edge. And, and so I think that that could provide some motivation for us to actually see more of a coalition toward addressing these problems. Now, I don't think it's going to necessarily wipe out the, you know, the, the strict partisan lines and the accusations that black people are in this position because they put themselves there and, you know, like, well, we're not taking care of ourselves and all that stuff. It's not going to wipe that out fully. 
But I think, you know, if we can inch toward maybe a more just society through this, I, I think that's possible. And, and I do think that that is something that we will see. Like, again, how big of the change it's going to be, that's the only time we'll tell. But I, I do think there will be some sort of reckoning there. Well, thank you, John, for taking the time to spend with us on Black Doctors Speak. Pretty interesting stuff. Wouldn't you say so, Jason? I completely agree. I was very struck by the notion of it takes a village in our community that he spoke about. And with that, you know, so many people of color rely on schools so heavily for childcare, as well as the help of grandparents and older relatives to help look after their kids. How do people, especially essential workers who have to go to work, navigate school reopenings and also making sure that they're keeping their parents and grandparents safe? Well, Jason, there is no easy choice. It's between the safety of your child and older relatives in your home and your employment. And each parent has to answer that for themselves. Uh, doctors can give you advice on that. Both issues are so important. Right. And so on that note, return to work for many is necessary. They have to make money. They have to put food on the table. But they're putting themselves in a very dangerous situation. How do essential workers and those returning to work keep themselves safe? Well, I think you've seen the metamorphosis of safety issues on almost every element of employment. People are now using glass shields, wearing gloves. Certainly people who you come in contact must be wearing masks. And so all you can do is just to work with your employer to make certain that every feature of safety that prevents you from coming in contact with a person with active coronavirus infection needs to be done before you even go back to that job. And if you go to the job and don't find those elements in place, talk to your employer, talk to your union, and make sure that the environment in which you place yourself is safe. The onus is on us to make sure that we are keeping ourselves safe wherever we go, even at work. Or the alternative is being stuck back in the house, which, as we know, is having serious mental effects on people. And the need to distance ourselves from other people is draining on the mind and the spirit. I have to ask, so many people want to know, are any gatherings a good idea? And will indoor gatherings ever be safe if we don't have a vaccine? Well, let me answer the second part of that question first. Nothing is going to be safe until we either have a vaccine or we have treatment options for this virus. And so consequently, thinking it's going to go away, that we're going to get enough herd immunity, is just a pipe dream. I would have to say that no gatherings more than four to six people are safe because in most instances, people don't have homes where you can put a lot of people six feet apart. And unless you know that person, uh, and even if you do know that person because the virus is so often asymptomatic in people, you really don't know where people have been. So uh, my uh, recommendation would be if you do have gatherings, they should be six people or less. Uh, And I think if there are more people than that, they have any kinds of symptoms uh, or they have been exposed or out of town, are there any one of these suspicious um, you know, factors, I don't care how close they are to you, they can be your favorite uncle, your favorite aunt, your old grandpa, but if they have symptoms, then they should not be allowed in those gatherings, and you should not be around them, nor should members of your family. I mean, on that note, right, we talk about herd immunity and vaccines. Did we miss our opportunity for containment, I mean, given where everything is in the country right now? We did miss an opportunity for containment very early on on this pandemic. And I think if we were to have a successful containment, it would have to have been a national strategy. Could not be local state to state like it has been. 
in addition, when we start talking about containment, you have to have other elements like testing. And testing that tells you whether people are positive, then you can do contact tracing. And that's what's so key to containing this virus. Now we're just in crisis mode. And so when you're dealing with crisis mode and we don't have the opportunity to contain, how do we prevent this in the future? How do we actually create real systemic change to keep our people safe? Well, Jason, in order for us to create real systemic change, we have to start planning for the future. I think President Obama did that in 2014 when he created a pandemic task force after the SARS virus and the Ebola virus epidemics. I think had we continued with that, along that course, we would be much better shaped today. An estimated 35 to 40,000 less people did. Wow, those are staggering numbers. And then, of course, I mean, we have to talk about voting. Go out there, vote on the local, the state, and the federal level for leaders who believe in protecting your health care and making sure that we are safe. The last thing I'll say here, there are a lot of people who are going through tough times right now, especially people of color as a result of this pandemic and all of the other racial issues that are just running through our country. What's the advice you give to people of color right now living through all this? I mean, what do we have to be hopeful about? Well, Jason, I think we have to keep hope alive. This is not the first natural disaster that we faced uh, in this country. Uh, and as black people, we faced even more critical times than this. I think, you know, of all the scientists in the world working on a vaccine or treatment options, we will get those. And what's most important, I think we need to change the national leadership and get leadership that pulls us together instead of tears us apart. And finally, I would say that we'll be better off in the future because of this experience, and I doubt if this will ever happen in this country again. Amazing. Well, I hope that your premonition comes true. Uh, I would say that we all can be grateful that this is an election year. Jason, you know I could continue this discussion all day, but we run out of time. I'd like to thank John Allegon for joining us and you for participating in this conversation. Remember, health is your biggest asset. Protect it. I'm Dr. Lenore. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on Black Doctors Speak. We are sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Remember, you can continue the conversation with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Black Doctors Speak, and on Twitter at Black Doc Speak. And check out our website for a bevy of healthcare resources at blackdoctorspeak.org. Thanks, everyone. Wear a mask.